One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to, and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law, to go after Hamas, to take back hostages, deter further incursions, and to strengthen your security for the long term. I know that you are taking every precaution to avoid harming civilians in direct contrast to the terrorists of Hamas, which seek to put civilians in harm's way. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording on Thursday the 19th of October. I'm Callum MacDonald. Welcome to the podcast. If you are new here, then you are especially welcome. Uh, You can follow, you can subscribe, you can stick around. And what we do on the podcast is take you in behind the scenes of policymaking and government to understand exactly what is going on and indeed what should be going on, perhaps. Uh, On today's episode, as ever, we're joined by the brain of Britain, Kirsty Buchanan who was a special advisor to <laughs> Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. <laughs> Hello, thank you for the uh, entertaining introduction. No, not at all. I'm trying uh, to find new most... ways to spruce it up at the start, you know. <laughs> you succeeded. That well, good, thank you. good. And we always report accurately on this podcast as well, so uh, Brain of Britain <laughs> is entirely applicable. Um, I We're just am... going to run that through BBC Verify later, right? <laughs> oh, good grief. Well, they've been having a shocking couple of weeks, I have to say. It's just mm-hmm. been it's been a difficult time. I mean, right, let's start here. It's been a difficult time for everyone because the situation in Israel and Gaza and for Palestinians and for Israelis and for Jewish people, it is difficult, it is nuanced, 
But there are certain things that are clear throughout this. So while perhaps the solutions and the working towards a ceasefire and peace is difficult, while people are so entrenched, actually there are things that are clear in all of this. One, the human tragedy being experienced by, well, actually thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people right now. Uh, Two, that Hamas is a terrorist organization who committed a terror act. And I think three, exactly that. We should remember the difficulty of the situation too. And as we're all navigating this, I think there's just such an importance in not rushing and not rushing to sort of stake some sort of a claim in what is happening and put, you know, in my take on it and here's my thing on it. Actually, this isn't, it's okay to stop and to learn and to try to process and understand. And I do think that should apply to media organizations as well, because it's such a difficult thing to navigate um, in order that we do it and we do the people at the heart of it justice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, I think what matters hugely at this time is that people are very mindful of what they say um, and how they say it uh, because this situation uh, is very fast moving. It is awful for every innocent person trapped in this uh, trapped in this situation um, and I think people should just be very very careful uh, about what they say and I if I had one other plea I would genuinely say to people stay off social media you know social media at this particular point in time is not mm. your friend it is an echo chamber where people, you know, spread stuff without any understanding uh, of the implications or consequences of it or whether it's true or not. Yeah. Um, and it just reinforces division uh, when at the moment we need to try and empathise and understand other people's viewpoints as much as we can, even when that's very difficult. You know, there are people who will seek to exploit and divide this situation um, uh, and, you know, and advance their own agendas and there are people who legitimately try are trying to work through this situation for the good of every single innocent person caught up in it mm. uh, and by and large you won't find that on uh, the artist formerly known as as Twitter you just won't so yeah. I've spent you know I, I I need to take my own advice I've spent you know quite a lot of time on there recently and it's it's in this particular moment it's not a healthy place to be no, it's really difficult. And I have to say, um, and perhaps I would say this, but I do think Times Radio has actually been really quite great at working through the issues, the ins and outs of the issues that are being presented by what's going on, whether that's sort of the moral issues, the ethical issues, the response of a military, the response of Israel, the action in the first place by Hamas, and always remembering the people at the heart of it. Now, this week I was at SNP conference in Aberdeen, and actually, the standout thing that I did, as far as I'm concerned, was speak to Nadia El-Nakla, who is Hamza Yusuf, the First Minister of Scotland's wife. And her parents are in Gaza with her extended family. Um, they were visiting cousins and aunties and whatever. And um, spoke to her a couple of days ago at conference, interviewed her for Times Radio. And she had literally, while I was plugging in my cables to do the interview, was on the phone to her relatives in Gaza before coming back through then to sit and discuss with me the fact that um, her mother was trying to treat 
dropped some of her young cousins. A two-year-old had shrapnel injuries after an Israeli drone had uh, a drone missile had hit near them. She said that the night before, her na- or her neighbors, her family's neighbors, had been hit, and in fact, they had died uh, just the night before. Um, and so, in terms of what was going on, they were literally le- living it, and that 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 is probably the closest I will, you know, I've come to. Um, the real life situation on the ground. Um, and she was sort of, she was saying as well that she just sees her role, this is Nadia, sees her role as getting these stories out because that is the real life experience of so many thousands of people right now. And I think if you lose sight of that to, to sort of retreat into some sort of entrenched political position, particularly on Twitter, then actually you're you're losing sight of what is so important in all of this. Um so yeah, she was really quite passionate about telling the stories of those people that she knows and the real difficulties and emphasizing the need for humanitarian help and for aid to get in and to see this as a humanitarian crisis was, was the, the thrust of what she was saying. Of course, the political situation is is notable and it's something we'll talk about on the podcast today. And in fact, you will hear before the end of the podcast from Sir Simon James. Uh, no, hang on. Sir Simon Fraser. I've got his full name written down. That's helpful. And you will hear before the end of the podcast from Sir Simon Fraser, um, a former diplomat who served as the permanent undersecretary of the Foreign Office. He did that from August 2010 to July 2015. He's really fascinating on the diplomatic efforts that are underway. President Biden has visited Israel. He was due to visit other countries in the region as well, but that had to be called off after that strike on a hospital. Uh, And then the various sort of regional leaders sort of pulled out of those meetings. In any case, President Biden has been... Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is there as we speak right now. Um, and so what impact will he have? In fact, he's carrying on his his visits around the region as well. Uh, so yeah, you'll hear from Sir Simon uh, Fraser before the end of the podcast today. Um, worth saying, Kirsty, you know, I mentioned um, Nadia El-Nakla and Hamza Yusuf there, and indeed SNP conference. And this was the dominating theme, actually. I don't want to say overshadowing the conference, because that's not accurate, but it was certainly a real presence at the conference because of Hamza Yusuf and his wife Nadia's um, real connection to the situation. Um, I mean, politically speaking, it just piled pressure on the first minister on what is already a politically intense time when you're, you know, you're, you're, it's the first time he's been leader at a party conference. His speech was coming up. The intensity that he was dealing with and his family was dealing with during this party conference was absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> nobody that's watched any interviews with the with the first minister over the uh, uh, you know the last week or so could fail to be moved by um, you know the, the the plight of him and his family, uh, and it, you get a very real sense of the terror uh, that you know innocent people on both sides of this uh, uh, war are, are are now feeling both those that have loved ones. Um, uh, in Gaza, and both those who are still trying to find out what has happened to relatives who were taken hostage by um, uh, by Hamas, and we, we we learned this morning of the you know the, the, the a you know a young teenage autistic girl uh, has now been identified as being among the dead, and that just uh, you know. Families here, families there, just waiting and hoping. I can't, you know. And then to be able to have to go through conference um, and you know try and negotiate and deliver on a 
uh, you know, a new position on independence and deliver a speech and rally the troops and all of that kind of uh, who of which is central when you're, you know, when you're a party leader. Uh, yes, I mean, I just, I, I don't know how, you know, he found the resilience to do it. Mm. Um, but I am interested because, you know, I, uh, you know, just to lighten the tone a little, if yeah. I may, for a, for, for a minute. Um, the new position on independence is it, you know, I, I'm interested in your views. I'm going to turn the tables and <laughs> interview you now. Um, is this just, uh, I mean, it, A, it was so complex, the whole kind of procedure that it would give Labour's party conference a run for its money. And B, <laughs> what is your understanding of the final position? And is it just a glorified way of kicking the can past the road for the general election? And they'll kind of worry about it later, as it were. Mm. I think the reality of the situation that the SNP has been in basically since the Supreme Court said you can't have a referendum, is that they've got nowhere else to go in terms of trying to get a referendum. And there is uh, one school of thought that actually everyone knows that. The SNP knows that, as in the politicians know that. The members of the party know that. The activists know that. Actually, they're kind of looking at, staring at a bit of a brick wall when it comes to a referendum. However, because the SNP's absolute reason for existence is independence, they have to have something, an iron in the fire somehow. And so, I mean, this is, I think, the third or fourth position in the space of the, a year in terms of strategy towards independence referendum. So it, the, the new one, the latest one, the current one, <laughs> the one that will last, we think, until the general election, is that they, the SNP, if they get the majority of seats at the general election, i.e. at least 29 MPs uh, in Scottish constituencies, then that would be a mandate for another referendum. And so it would open the door, according to the language that they've used, to negotiations with the Westminster government on independence. Now, what is slightly confusing about that, first of all, is that both Labour and the Conservatives have said this isn't going to happen. Independence is not on the table. So whichever party forms the next government at Westminster, they've already said no chance. Uh, the other thing is that the motion has language like this. It would begin negotiations with London to, quote, give democratic effect to Scotland becoming independent. Uh, and nobody's quite sure what that means. Indeed, Joanna Cherry, SNP MP, told me it could mean one of several things, either holding a referendum on independence, to negotiate independence directly, as in the election result would be the nod for independence, um, or indeed it could just mean sort of continuing the pursuit of independence in some other ways. So they've agreed a, a motion. I'm reluctant to call it a way forward because I'm not actually sure how, how far they'll get with it. There is also the chance that the SNP will not return 29 MPs from Scottish constituencies <laughs> at the next election. How many seats have they got? How many seats they hold now? So right now they've got 43 out of 59. At the next election, there will be 57 up for grabs because of boundary changes and stuff. So um, so that's just a, a slight tweak in the numbers. So yeah, 29 is the magic number next time. But based on polling, there's every chance that they will drop potentially 20 seats. Yeah. And it is a peculiar position. So what they're basically saying is we can lose quite a chunk of seats at yes. the next election, but still call that a ringing endorsement for... 
independence, which exactly. I think most people would be would scratching their head at a bit, and that's assuming, as you say, they even reach that uh, bar. And it is interesting, isn't it, that you know uh, Humza Yusuf uh, uh, is one of those uh, leaders who. Who you know? Who might not be there by the next party conference? You know, yeah. if they if they don't hit that magic. You, this is the trouble with targets, right? You put targets in place, and you don't hit them, then you know there's an accountability and responsibility part that comes into play. You know, um, the other thing I'm not quite sure I understand because because actually the um, the polls suggest that you know support for independence hasn't really fallen away. It's still mm. you know nudging around kind of fifty percent. But, you know, because you've got this kind of intractable problem and whether you've got a Labour government or a Conservative government after the next election, there's still unionist parties and they both still said no. I mean, Plaid Cymru on paper is a, you know, is, is a, you know, the, the Welsh kind of nationalist party, uh, you know, in theory would like to break away, as it were, but, but they've refashioned themselves as a kind of general, well, a, a partly socialist, uh, you know, a socialist alternative to to the Labour Party, but also a sort of more generic pride in Wales, mm. uh, you know, campaigning for the Welsh language, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any sense that, you know, the SNP are going to just slightly try and rebrand themselves to get them out of this awkward <laughs> cul-de-sac that they now found themselves in politically? <laughs> it's an awkward cul-de-sac. I think it's a really good point because if you listen to some politicians, and I'm actually going to cite my my friend and co-host of the Hollywood Sources podcast, Jeff Aberdeen, who was Alex Plug, Salmon's plug. chief of staff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cross promo. Um, his thing is fight the general election on a platform of standing up for Scotland and then look to the Holyrood election in 2026 as the one where you could start sort of edging towards independence again. His thing is that from his time in office with Salmond, um, that they were governing for Scotland and that was the way that they were intending on convincing people to support independence. And they moved the dial. They absolutely did um, in terms of the uptick in support for independence. So Jeff would very much advocate a govern for Scotland. And what is interesting in that, actually, is so I, find, I found having experienced party conference for the first time these last few days, the most interesting people to speak to are the delegates, the people who are there as members, supporters, activists, always, always, always. And there was this couple uh, from Aberdeenshire, El- I mean, I'm sure they won't mind me saying, elderly couple who had been going to party conference for years upon years upon years, decades. And they said, all we want is something that we can take to our friends that will that they can hope in, that they can believe in, in terms of what an SNP government will give them. That's the key thing, is I need to be able to have a have friends join for dinner and say, well, you know, the SNP will do X, Y, or Z. So I think there is actually a feeling among party members as well that that, that is exactly what they want. I think the wider kind of, the other 50% who don't support independence and just want Scotland to be run well, I mean, absolutely, that's what they're looking for. When it comes to sailing new ferries, fixing the NHS, closing the attainment gap, uh, investing in infrastructure like the main road between the Highlands and the Central Belt, the A9, which is not a dual carriageway. There are all of these sorts of things that people are saying, look, fix them, fix them. And then with that, you will start to see an uptick in support for the SNP. At the moment, John, Professor Sir John Curtis says, you know, as you say, Kirsty, that independent support is, it always hovers around 50. It has done since 2014, give or take a few points here or there. But actually, independent supporting voters are backing Labour. 
they're drifting to the Labour Party. And that's the SNP's sort of electoral problem with the whole thing as well. And is that driven in large part by the sort of the, the state of public services in yeah, Scotland? Yeah, definitely. And time for a change is the, you know, is the classic, yeah. isn't it? It's the, in that way, it's the same as Westminster. The people of Scotland have had two governments who have both been in power for a long, long time. The SNP since 2007 and the Conservatives at Westminster since 2010. So actually, they're a really fascinating kind of um, crossroads and juxtaposition of two governments that are fatigued. As we've discussed in the pod yeah. before in, in relation to the Conservatives, but actually, that is where Scotland finds itself right now, which I think is fascinating because it could lead to complete upheaval in the next couple of elections. Uh, speaking of elections, the Conservatives might be about to get pummeled in another couple of by-elections. Um, it is polling day to day, of course, in uh, Tamworth and in mid-Bedfordshire. Um, these are the seats of Chris Pincher and Nadine Doris, or indeed they were uh, the seats of both of those. Um, Greg Hands, the Conservative Party chairman, telling the Times governments don't win by elections, which is some optimistic um, expectation <laughs> management there from Mr. Hands, is it not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, because I obviously like to do my research for the pod, uh, I rang a couple of uh, long-term campaigners for the Conservative Party who've been out on... Uh, on the stump, as it were, in in both uh, by elections, uh, both constituencies, to say like you know, what does it feel like? Mm. What is the mood? Um, and it's interesting, in as much as Tamworth, which is uh, where Chris Pincher has stood down, um, uh, I, you know, <laughs> it's toast for the Tories in Tamworth. Right. <laughs> Um, and I liked saying that, so I'm going to do it again. Just toast for the Tories in Tamworth. Um, however, what is fascinating is mid-beds. So mid-beds is, um, uh, I think, a majority of about 26,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a rock, rock-solid conservative seat. It has always been a conservative seat, which is not the same as Tamworth. Uh, it would be seismic uh, if they lost uh, mid-beds and... Um, it's complicated by the fact that there's a lot of bad blood and bad feeling within the kind of conservative, you know, the local constituency conservative party because Nadine Doris announced that she was going to stand down and then kind of hung around for quite some time, uh, which, you know, has caused a lot of ill feeling. Uh, So if they lost the seat, there is no question that if the conservatives lost both of them, you would see a revival of that kind of, you know, dare I say it? You know, uh, letters going into to, to Graham Brady and and potentially, you know, if things don't turn around, you know, maybe even a vote of no confidence in Rishi by the end of the year. Now, that's that's what you know people who are, you know, no fans of Rishi Sunak tell me. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously he would win yeah. uh, a no confidence vote, but you know, it you know, you you win and you lose all the same all at the same time. As as I can, I can testify from my time at Downing Street, you can win a vote of no confidence, but it, you are, mm. you know, you are mortally wounded, as it were. Um, but the interesting thing about uh, mid beds, and I spoke to a couple of people, they said they've never seen so many don't knows on a doorstep. Really. Um, so when when people say it's all to play for, it's because they genuinely don't know. Uh, I think you've got. I think it would be you know an easier sell if 
you know, Labour and the Liberal Democrats had had kind of some kind of tacit tactical voting agreement, but they haven't. So your alternative vote is potentially split. Mm. Uh, but the reality is, is, is the Conservative campaigners out in Midbeds don't know how much of the Conservative vote will turn out for them. Um, because, like I say, there's a lot of sort of soured feelings by uh, the manner of Nadine Doris's departure. So it is, you know, not all to play for. It is literally one of those seats where, frankly, right now, Conservatives, honestly, even hardened campaigners have been doing this for, you know, decades, don't know, wouldn't want to posit a, posit a guess at the outcome. Like I say, it would be pretty seismic if they lost it. My, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a hostage to fortune um, and say that Conservatives will, will squeak it. Interesting. Um, that is really, that, which in itself would be a, a, a real narrative shift for the Conservatives. They, sure, they would spin that as, you know, triumphant, you know, governments don't win uh, by elections, but here we are. Yeah, with everybody said we were going to lose mid, yeah. Everybody said we were going to lose mid beds and blah, 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 blah. I mean, the reality is if the Conservatives lost mid beds, it would be, you know, pretty catastrophic from an electoral kind of read across point of view and by elections are not the same as general elections. And I get that. Mm. Uh, but that would create a lot of very, very worried people at the moment in terms of their own seats. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the red wall seats, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of crossed fingers, mm. you know, and hoping uh, at, at CCHQ and, 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 and absolutely they'll say, look, everybody said we were going to lose this and we didn't. Um but if you've got a very slashed majority and, you know, the reaction of CCHQ is to breathe a huge sigh of relief <laughs> for holding on to mid-beds, yeah. you know, that should tell you something in its own right about where the electorate at large are in terms of, you know, their appetite for change, even though, as we've said many times, you know, the, the public are not sold on Keir Starmer. Mm. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think that kind of time for a change you know, sentiment is, you know, is potentially, you know, driving it more than anything else. But we shall yeah. see. In the morning, well, we, we shall. shall see. We shall indeed see. Um, and by the way, uh, as as a regular listener to Whitehall Sources, you're probably wondering uh, why this uh, episode has dropped into your feed at precisely one minute past 10 p.m., uh, that's in order. That's in order that our discussion can stay in because it's very helpful for setting the context for results day. But of course, broadcasting rules mean that we're not allowed to talk about uh, by-elections during polling day. So we've set this to publish at one minute past ten after the polls have closed. You are welcome, listeners, and don't blame us for the antiquated and stupid election rules. Uh, but they exist for a reason. So there we are. Uh, right, good. Still to come on the podcast, then we are going to talk more about the situation in the Middle East. We've got Sir Simon Fraser coming up for you, British uh, diplomat. He was the permanent undersecretary of the Foreign Office as well. Uh, stay with us for that. We'll be right back. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff, and all of it was within a 10-minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location... Double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise. I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us this week. It's Kirsty Buchanan and Callum McDonald with you. And so, Kirsty, let's turn then just to some brief thoughts on the situation in the Middle East before we get Sir Simon Fraser on the podcast, who worked in the Foreign Office as the Permanent Undersecretary. He's also a former diplomat as well. A great time to hear from Sir Simon, actually, because of the visits of various world leaders. We've had German Chancellor Schultz, uh, President Biden's been there in the last couple of days. Even as we speak, Rishi Sunak is continuing his tour around the Middle East as well. Uh, having landed in in Israel and and spoken of his support for the Israeli government as well. What's your sort of interpretation, I guess, of the international response and of the of the visits of the various world leaders? Because that's that's the stage we've reached now in the midst of the chaos, the fighting, the humanitarian difficulties that we started the podcast talking about. Actually, politically, this is about leaders showing their support at this point. Yeah, well, it's 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 it. Performs two functions, I think. Um, one, obviously, is the very real show of support, uh, which is restated uh, in countries standing next to the leader, and that is, you know, that is vitally important uh, at this time. Uh, but the other is obviously what is discussed, uh, you know, in private, and yeah. you get a sense of some of that. I think what we've seen. Um, is a is a slight shift uh, politically right across the spectrum uh, over the last week. From uh, you know, we unequivocally stand with you. You have absolutely every right to defend yourself. There is no justification uh, for this uh, appalling atrocity. All of those things remain true. Uh, but I think what we're getting behind the scenes and beginning to see a little bit fleshed out in public statements is a concern 
uh, obviously for uh, the impact that both, you know, airstrikes from Israel and a potential uh, ground invasion, and it's worth reminding people that that has not happened yet, um, the impact that that will have on, you know, 2.2 million Gazans who are who are trapped in this conflict, uh, the Rafah crossing, which is the only crossing uh, out to Egypt in the south, remains closed. Um, uh, so I think what we're beginning to see is all, we, we stand with you. You have an absolute right uh, to defend yourself and go in and, 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 and take out Hamas. However, you know, uh, do not fall into the trap that Hamas is trying to set for you. Mm. You know, do not, in the pursuit of this, create even more problems both for Israel and, you know, as we've seen terribly this week, you know, again, what happens in Israel has a very real consequence for for British Jews and Jews right across Europe. So I think what we're seeing in public is a, you know, we've got a very measured version of that, you know, coming out in public. But in in you know behind the scenes, you'll see Biden and Rishi making making those points to him. You know, this is a trap they've set to destabilize, that could potentially destabilize the whole region. Mm. Uh, and it comes down to you know it, it is difficult. You know, obviously. You know, to, to deal with someone like Netanyahu, who, uh, partly because he is a very, very hardline uh, leader in any event, there is now a, a unity government. But also, just if you think from a human motivation point of view, not only does Netanyahu uh, have the responsibility of saving those hostages that are still held in Gaza, of persecuting against a war against terrorists who have committed some of the most uh, appalling atrocities that, you know, any of us will ever read about. And I, you know, I hope to never read about such appalling attacks again, uh, defending a nation which, by the way, you know, and uh, is also being repeatedly barraged by rockets, you know, day in, day out. I, you know, I have friends in Israel and, you know, uh, we're on a WhatsApp group and every single day, every single day, there are air raids in central Israel, in southern Gosh. Israel. People have to go to their to their shelters. So, you know, what you know, let's not forget that the terror that the Gazans are feeling, you know, uh, is is replicated there. But also Netanyahu is driven by his own crushing failure. You know, his failure to, you know, intelligence failure to see this, his failure to protect people. Um, and for a man like him, it's very, very hard for him to, you know, t- to listen to other people say, look, you know, show some restraint, get, you know, allow humanitarian aid in. Because right now, this man is just motivated by his own guilt and shame mm. uh, that, that, that this happened on his watch, if you like. Uh, and his perfectly understandable and 100% justifiable decide to take out every single, you know, operative uh, in Hamas. But, 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 you know, this is why I thought the Biden point was really interesting, you know, about learn from our lessons, learn from the dangers of mission creep. You know, what happened uh, after 9-11 was supposed to be taking out uh, al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. It, you know, it, it morphed into something that led to a catastrophic invasion in Iraq. Uh, not just catastrophic for the people of Iraq, but for the whole region and for you know f- for wider security concerns. And once this is all over, there is going to have to be a political solution. 
you know, you're going to have to find a way, not of negotiating with Hamas, they will be, um, you know, they will have been remu- removed, you know. But if you if you go in now uh, and you, uh, you know, if the siege particularly continues, you know, you're going to end up potentially fighting uh, Hezbollah on the Northern Front. You know, we've already seen a lot of action in West Bank that could very well explode into a very real security concern for Israel. So you'd be fighting, you know, in the south and in the north and on the, you know, in the west. Mm. You know, just, you know, it's not just the victims uh, of that terrible, terrible atrocity on October the 7th you need to think about now. It's potential future victims, you know, all the Israeli soldiers that will die, all the potential attacks that could happen if this escalates into a wider conflict. And let's be honest, this is what Hamas want. They want to bring the whole thing down. You know, that was the purpose of this. This is the purpose of terror. Um, And so I think, you know, we're seeing a shift from the West to, to we support you, we understand your concerns, your need, your justification. You know, we we stand shoulder to shoulder in you and attacking Hamas, but, 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 you know, the people, the innocent Gazans, you know, they must have humanitarian aid. They must have water and shelter and safety. Uh, and you need to not fall into this terrible, terrible trap where things will get, you know, it's hard to imagine right now having to say this to 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 an Israeli, but things could get a lot worse than they already are. Uh, just as we're speaking, Number 10 have sent out the readout of the Prime Minister's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Let me just bring you this. The Prime Minister met Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. He expressed the deep condolences of the British people for the terrible loss of life that's occurred in Israel. He underscored the UK's firm belief in Israel's right to self-defence in accordance with international humanitarian law as they work to end the threat of Hamas and secure the freedom of hundreds of Israeli hostages. The Prime Minister thanked Prime Minister Netanyahu Yahoo for his support for the British nationals who have been taken by Hamas and both leaders agreed to work closely together to secure their freedom. The PM welcomed Prime Minister Netanyahu's announcement yesterday on opening up aid access to Gaza. He emphasised the importance of establishing sustained access to get more uh, vital food, water, medicine and fuel into Gaza and to enable British nationals trapped there to leave. Both leaders underscored the need to prevent any regional escalation in the conflict and the importance of restoring peace and stability to the region. So that's from uh, number 10, as the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak concludes his meeting with PM Netanyahu of Israel. With all of that in mind then, let's have a listen to Sir Simon Fraser, former diplomat for the UK, who served as the Permanent Undersecretary of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office uh, from 2010 to 2015. Clearly it is a situation that is on a knife edge, uh, and uh, it's, it's extremely risky and feelings are running very high uh, in Israel and of course uh, uh, amongst the Palestinians uh, and across the uh, Arab world more generally. So, you know, it is a very high risk situation. And the the tragic incident um, at the Al-Ahli hospital just demonstrated how fragile <clears throat> these situations are uh, and how you know, a single incident, tragic incident like that can actually really affect um, the balance of perceptions of the issue in a, in a very challenging way. Um, so obviously there is a risk of escalation still, both um, in Gaza and beyond Gaza, notably in Lebanon. Uh, and it's a very, it, it is a very concerning situation. You're absolutely right. 
Mm. What do you make of the visits of world leaders? We've had German Chancellor Schultz, we've had President Biden, Rishi Sunak is there even as we speak. What is the what is the purpose of these visits and realistically what do they achieve? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that it, it's good that they're happening because I think it's very important that there is international engagement uh, in this uh, on this issue. It can't just be left to sort of play itself out in the region. So it's very good. Uh, the most important thing in my mind is that you know President Biden went. I think that was a signal of American engagement and leadership. And look, after all, America has historically had the central role in um, diplomacy in the region and particularly diplomacy between Israel and the Palestinians. So that was really important. It demonstrated American engagement. It demonstrated American support for Israel. But clearly also serious conversations took place with uh, the Israeli government. We don't know the exact full content of it, but serious conversations about the next steps and how Israel should should handle them. So, so that's important. Uh, the visit was undermined to some extent by the by, by the fact that as a result of the uh, attack on Al Ahly Hospital, the the Arab leg of it, there was supposed to be a meeting in Amman with um, uh, leaders of Arab governments. That didn't happen, including the Palestinian Authority, and therefore that sort of unbalanced the visit a bit, which is a shame. But nevertheless, I think it was worth doing, and the fact that uh, President Biden appears to have negotiated some sort of humanitarian relief agreement through the Rafah crossing in South Gaza is important. Now, that hasn't yet come into effect, so we're waiting to see uh, how that is uh, implemented, and it's not going to happen at least for another 24 hours, we're told. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's a step in the right direction, a really important one, uh, but we need to follow through on it. Yeah. Now then, I mean, the visit that we've now got with uh, Prime Minister Sunak, uh, in Israel as we speak is, I think, also useful and important. And I'm sure that these are coordinated. I'm sure there's been a discussion between London and Washington and there's a coordinated approach. And I think it, you know, it serves to uh, keep the channels of conversation open. It serves again to demonstrate support for Israel in the face of the original terrible terrorist attack. But it also, I think, in the case of Rishi Sunak, hopefully will enable him to meet some leaders in Arab countries in the region, which Joe Biden couldn't do. And that might give further you know, impetus to diplomacy in helping to prevent escalation, which has got to be one of the top priorities at the moment. So it's good it's happening. Yeah. I just on the on the note of helping to prevent escalation, I think that's really interesting and clearly admirable and noble. I mean, one one commentator that I heard this morning was rather sceptical of, of Joe Biden, the outcome of Joe Biden's visit, saying, you know, he's managed to get 20 tonnes of aid through the border. Is that all the US president could achieve in this situation? Um, what would you what would you say to that? Is, is it a case of, well, it's better than nothing? Or is it a case of actually, what is the diplomatic heft here? How does it operate? Well, I mean, as I said, I think it's a shame that the visit was sort of undermined by the fact that he wasn't able to have the parallel meetings on the Arab side and therefore to do the diplomacy that he probably intended to do on both sides. But I would challenge, I mean, we don't know what the outcome of that meeting, of that visit is yet, is really the answer. So on the humanitarian side, it's true it's only 20 trucks, but that is the initial, as I as, as I read the most recent reports, that is the initial mm. uh, um, sort of convoy. But the understanding is that there will be more convoys afterwards. So it could be um, uh, much more important. And I think the UN says they need 100 trucks a day 
to deal with the situation. So obviously more is needed. So let's see how that plays out. But you know, if that does happen, that is a significant achievement. Secondly, I do think it's clear from what the president himself has said that there were serious conversations with the Israeli leadership about how they conduct the next phase of their operation. There is going to be another phase uh, on the Israeli side against Hamas. It's probably still going to be a ground invasion. But, you know, Joe Biden actually said some quite interesting things in public about the mistakes that he feels the Americans made in overreacting, for example, to 9-11. That is sort of diplomatic messaging to the Israelis that, you know, the Americans want them to think carefully about the nature and extent of the action they take. And, you know, diplomacy doesn't happen in public. So you and I don't know exactly what was discussed behind closed doors. And of course, the other thing the Americans have got is they've got a lot of leverage in the sense that they have deployed significant naval forces uh, off the coast. And I think that is important for Israel because that will help, if necessary, deter escalation in southern Lebanon, potentially. So, you know, I think we should give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt, actually, at the moment, in terms of his diplomatic action. Yeah. You mentioned the countries that he now won't be or or couldn't meet uh, while he was there. Uh, Rishi Sunak and the Foreign Secretary do appear to be able to engage with uh, the wider region, I suppose. One of my questions, though, is yeah. is even with that in mind, is is the diplomacy happening with the correct countries? In all of these conversations, we talk about a country that is backed by another, and I'm thinking of Iran's involvement in all of this. Is yeah. there a way to actively engage with the, the, the backing countries as well? Well, I think the first thing, it is important to engage with if you, what you might call the frontline countries. So right. you're thinking yeah. particularly there of Egypt and Jordan, uh, and, you know, Lebanon as well to an extent, although the Lebanese government doesn't actually control Hezbollah uh, in its own territory. But it's important because that is part about support, partly about supporting those countries and shoring them, them up. Because Jordan, for example, is always a sort of vulnerable when there's instability in the region. It has a large Palestinian population itself and, you know, it has to deal very carefully with these things. So that is important. Your second point, however, is, you know, are we able to reach... The, the people like Iran, mm. who are supporting for Hamas and Hezbollah. And on that, I would say two things. First of all, I don't know what sort of diplomatic channels the Americans have with the Iranians. And by definition, those are going to be kept very quiet. But also, significantly, as I understand it, Rishi Sunak is going to be talking to the government of Qatar. Mm. And the Qataris have been involved, as I understand it, in negotiations with the Iranians and um, have some contacts with Fatah and others. So I think there, it, there is outreach going on, but you know it's obviously very unlikely to become fully publicly known, the extent of those sort of contacts. Mm. In your estimation... So obviously there are public warnings, for example, to Iran and others not to, not to get involved. Yeah. Uh, I suspect there is action behind the scenes also to pass messages. Yeah, that's very interesting. Is there, a, is there any inevitability about the nature of the support from the UK, the US and others, both in rhetoric, both in visible presence on the ground now, and as you say, with a kind of military or naval presence in this context, with all of that there right now, is there a, an inevitability about 
our involvement if there is escalation? Do do the Western nations, Western powers who are offering support now have to become involved if if this conflict escalates? The answer to that is no. Uh, we don't have to become militarily involved. Uh, and, you know, I think it would be highly undesirable for that to happen. Our, the purpose of the diplomacy is to deter that from happening and prevent it happening, simply because if it were to happen, it would be, you know, a really bad outcome. Um, so if there is sort of localised escalation, then uh, it's not necessarily the case that we would get involved on the ground. Um, but as, you know, uh, as, as we have already discussed, the US has positioned naval assets uh, offshore and the, and the UK is also deploying in the region. So the, the objective of that is deterrence. And I think the clear diplomatic objective is to prevent not only us getting involved, but also other states in the region getting involved. So at the moment, the, the, the conflict is between Israel and Hamas. There are serious issues about the involvement of civilians on both sides caught up in that. You know, the Israelis who were killed, the hostages, up to 200 hostages being held in Gaza, and of course, the Palestinian civilians. It would be undesirable for that to spread to involve other Arab states in the region. So it became state to state conflict. And it would be far worse indeed further if it were to involve militarily powers outside the region, um, uh, such as the United States and others. Is it constructive to, to consider how, how we have reached this point? Um, someone I heard on the radio last weekend suggested that there'd be no real diplomatic engagement of, of any sort of depth or meaning since the days of George W. Yeah. Bush. And I just, I wonder if actually we need to sort of do a bit of a retrospective here and think, gosh, has there been a, a vacuum and this is the inevitable filling of it? Well, I think that's a very, you know, a very, a very reasonable question to ask. And it's true that the sort of high point of international diplomacy on the Israel-Palestine problem uh, was probably 1995 with the Oslo Accords, which set up the Palestinian Authority and created a framework for peace heading towards a two-state solution. But in particular, after the assassination of of Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister in 1995, that unraveled and the Palestinian leadership couldn't deliver on its side and confidence in those agreements was undermined and terrorism escalated. And the sort of, since then, diplomatic progress towards the two-state solution has been less uh, focused uh, and, uh, and successful. And the last really significant uh, initiative was actually that launched by John Kerry when he was Secretary of State. I think it was in 2013 and 14 that he launched the, an, uh, an initiative to try to, to sort of reignite negotiations on a two-state solution, but that didn't come to anything. And since then, frankly, sort of diplomacy in the region has sort of bypassed the Palestinian issue. So there's been a lot of focus, for example, on relations between Israel and the Arab states in the Gulf. And there's been a number of um, um, sort of uh, peace agreements signed between them and relations established between them. I think the mistake that we've made um, is perhaps to take our eye off the central issue, which is the problem of the Palestinians. And I would say, you know, any diplomacy in the Middle East in the end is not going to be able to establish lasting peace and security if it doesn't address the Palestinian component, mm -hmm. which is at the heart of this long-standing 
and highly sensitive, you know, political problem of these two peoples uh, in, in, you know, in the same area, very small territorial area, um, and, and the competition that arises between them. Do you feel like the UK government has got its messaging right with that in mind thus far, which has very much, you know, been built around Israel has the right to defend herself, with which I'm sure actually very few people would disagree. But actually, I wonder if there's been enough nuance in that response, given the the, the difficulty Uh, that civilians are facing across the region. I think it was really important that the initial response was a very clear one, that, you know, the responsibility for this crisis uh, is the attack by Hamas on Israeli civilians. And Israel has the right in law to defend itself against that threat. And I think it was important that that was clearly and unequivocally stated. Uh, I then think it was also right for President Biden, who gave the lead on this, to say at the same time that as Israel exercises that right of self-defense, they need to think about the way they do it and respect the accepted rules of of conflict uh, and war and think through the broader implications of, um, for example, civilian suffering in Gaza. The British government has aligned itself with that. Um, You might say they were a little bit slow to move there. They certainly followed the Americans. But I don't think there's a significant gulf, and I think that the balance of that messaging is is right now. Um, clearly, respe- um, respecting Israel's right to take action, but urging Israel to take that action in the most measured and effective way that they can, which targets Hamas, but do- but minimizes to the extent possible the collateral damage and the suffering of innocent Palestinians. In your estimation, Simon, is it is it the reality that these visits by world leaders is what is holding back a ground offensive by Israel right now? And actually, in the coming days, we're going to see a further escalation. Well, well, I, th- I think it's one of the things that may be giving pause to it. And I think that is welcome. And the fact that these conversations are taking place is helpful. I think it's not the only thing. I think that um, the Israelis you know, they face a very difficult military task if they go in uh, with, with a ground uh, a, a ground offensive on the ground. Because as we all know, there are these tunnels in Gaza and Hamas is a, is a, is a well-trained fighting military force. So the Israelis need to give themselves time to work out how to do that. Secondly, um, they need to think about the risk of, of um, escalation because the ground offensive may well be the trigger for that. So they need to think that, that that through as well. And of course, they also need to bear in mind that how they do it is going to have an impact on the international response to their action. Therefore, getting it right and thinking it through is a sensible thing to do. So there are a number of reasons why I think the Israelis are taking their time. Um, but I do actually expect them to do uh, to, to go in on the ground uh, in the next few days. I think that has to be the expectation. It's not a certainty. And indeed, President Biden did say that he discussed alternative approaches with um, the Israeli leadership. But I don't know what that might mean uh, and the scope of, of those possible alternatives. I think we have to expect a ground offensive at some point soon. 
I have to say there there is an undercurrent of optimism from you for the diplomatic efforts. Is that is that a fair a fair uh, listening to what you've been saying that actually there could be a diplomatic solution at some point in all of this? Uh, I'm not sure. It's not easy to be optimistic given the gravity of the crisis and the fact that, as I've said, I expect there to be further military action and therefore there will be, if that is correct, there's going to be uh, further suffering and therefore, you know, attention across the world will focus on this and the risk of escalation is real. I am, however, pleased that, that diplomacy is happening. I think it's absolutely essential uh, and that there is um, uh, discussion taking place and that, you know, Israel is being supported, but also persuaded, I hope, to think through the consequences of its actions. And that are equally on the other side, that other, uh, other potential actors are being persuaded not to uh, support escalation. So I think that is really important. Uh, but as I said at the very beginning, it, we're on a knife edge here. Mm. And if there is going to be a longer term diplomatic solution to the problem, we're a long way off that. I mean, we're going to go through this immediate crisis and there's going to be a lot that comes out of that before we get into the position where things are a bit more stabilised and people can think about the next phase of politics and diplomacy uh, addressing the issue. I, I think that's, that's a long way off, but it has to remain our objective. Simon, thank you very much indeed. It's great to speak to you. Thank you. So that is Sir Simon Fraser. Really interesting to hear from him on the on the way that diplomacy can potentially work in this situation. Um, it's interesting he referred to President Biden's visit as feeling slightly unbalanced because of the cancellation of the further visits beyond Israel. Um, of course, that was kind of circumstantial and, and, and based on the context in which um, he was in the region. Uh, but it is notable. He was also, Kirsty, picking up on you know the overreaction to 9-11 comments as well. But also interesting on diplomacy doesn't happen in public um, and emphasising actually that American leverage is real and the UK should be a, a part of that as well. And in terms of UK leverage, are you kind of noticing a, a slight shift in approach here then from, from Rishi Sunak as he tours the region? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's interesting that that readout um, from Downing Street that we, we ran through uh, before listening to Sir Simon, I think the key phrase uh, for us to be mindful of in that is your right to self-defence in accordance with international humanitarian mm. law. I think that is the indicator of what is going on, you know, and the language uh, and the conversations that are being had uh, behind the scenes. And, you know, let's look at the importance of diplomacy here and those conversations leader to leader conversations. You know, originally Israel uh, said to the people of northern Gaza, you have 24 hours to move south, we're moving in. You know, I suspect yeah. that a lot of behind the scenes conversations were had about you cannot move that many, you know, that number of people uh, in that time frame. And here we are almost a week on from that and that ground invasion uh, has still not happened. I think there is, you know, obviously sustained pressure on Egypt about the Rafa crossing. And, you know, the significance of, you know, the water got turned back on and now we've got some some humanitarian aid going in. Uh, I appreciate it's not enough, but the fact that, you know, ground is being given here uh, in circumstances, uh, you know, that no leader would ever have to, you know, have to grapple with. Ground is being given and that is about... Um, you know, friends of yours, 
you know, critical friends of yours being able to come and say, look, you know, we've got your back. Mm. We know that we will always be there for you, but, but, but. And that is, you know, that is the importance of this. You're going to listen to that. It is also interesting to note, though. Um, now, I was out in Israel a year ago. Okay. Um, you know, and, you know, we're having conversations with, you know, uh, IDF, you know, military leaders, uh, politicians, etc. Um, there was a lot uh, at the time, quite a lot of um, ill feeling about America. There was a feeling that America under Biden um, had pulled back from Middle East. Its concerns were all now, you know, um, you know, in the Pacific around the sort of rise of China uh, and and obviously Ukraine. And it had kind of said to Israel, okay, you know, we've done our bit, you know. And they were saying, you know, over and over again, look at Iran, look at the threat that it is becoming, mm. look at what it wants to do to destabilize the area. So I think uh, whilst Biden will have made a lot of, you know, points about learn our lessons from 9-11, do not allow this to spiral into something far worse than you could possibly imagine. Uh, but I think that will have come, potentially might have come back with some other, you know, some other sort of sharp words from Israel was there was a feeling that, you know, America had, you know, America had taken its eye off the ball in the Middle East quite a lot too. Um, and so, you know, we shall see. But clearly, as you know, as we've been able to see on the ground, there is movement, there is some give in Israel's position. Uh, I think the, you know, the, 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 the agreement around aid uh, is a is a huge breakthrough and a welcome one. Um, and I, like everybody else, you know, uh, hope that the you know the Rafa crossing can open uh, and that there's a you know there's an exit route for for people who <laughs> want nothing more than you know the safety of their family, like you know every other you know innocent Israeli family do. And 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 you know it comes back to our point about that we were talking about at the start of the podcast, you know. This is why uh, this is so delicate right now. The diplomacy is so delicate that situations that happen on the ground, we saw it with, you know, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas cancelling that, that, that meeting uh, with Biden, you know, uh, on the back of that terrible, terrible, terrible uh, explosion at the hospital. You know, media, <laughs> you know, right now have a hugely important role to play uh, to rush to uh, pronounce on what has happened when you don't know mm. in a situation as delicate as this is really problematic. And, you know, I have to say, when you're the BBC and you're the, you know, you're the state broadcaster, you're the publicly funded broadcaster, your job is not to rush out news really quickly on the basis of we've been told this without trying to establish the facts. There's an old adage in journalism, which is report what you know. And so actually we had this situation where, you know, the, the notifications that went out from uh, from BBC laid the blame uh, at the door of an Israeli airstrike before any, you know, which was based on, you know, a report from the Hamas health ministry. Well, what, you know, uh, the health ministry of Gaza is not an independent organization. Like everything else, it is run by Hamas and should be treated with a great deal of skepticism, no matter how awful something appears on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've, you know, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force has gone out of its way in a tweet 
uh, to condemn, you know, the initial reporting of the BBC on this because it has a, you know, I mean, look, all journalists on the ground should be very careful, not rush to judgment, but particularly the BBC. And given the very, very poor relations between the BBC and the British Jewish community before this terrible, terrible atrocity was inflicted on the people of Israel, uh, I think they should be really really mindful of of what they report and make sure that they are simply reporting what they know and not citing sources of which they should be sceptical, you know. I think it's a very valid point. Absolutely, absolutely. There's great difficulty in getting this right and so rushing to uh, conclusion it tends not to be all that helpful, actually, as we've seen this week. Um, Kirsty, thank you very much. Uh, great to spend some time chatting through politics with you. So, yeah, thanks, Kirsty. And thanks to uh, Sir Simon Fraser for taking part in the podcast as well today. We really appreciate his input. Uh, your input's always welcome as well. Don't forget, you can email anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to drop into the inbox whenever you like. Uh, you can reflect, perhaps, perhaps, on the by-election results. Uh, which probably by the time you're hearing this will be a little bit clearer, for example. What does it mean? What does it mean for you? Uh, We'll talk about more uh, in the world of politics for you next week on Whitehall Sources. Make sure you follow and subscribe, and we will chat to you then.